We're in the year of 2023. If you follow the news closely, China, one of the largest economies in the world today, again, is gaining more attractions than ever. Given the fact that recently the French president Emmanuel Macron paid a short visit to this nation, on one hand, some people argue that Macron achieved his goals during his visitation to China. But on the other hand, other people are arguing that Macron made a mistake by visiting China. Well, what gives? But meanwhile, more international diplomats are on their way. And how about the current president of Brazil, Lula? He's also scheduled to visit China, given the fact the two countries recently sealed a $30 million bill currency swap agreement. Now, that could elevate this relationship between Brazil and China to the next level. And how about the relationship between the two countries at this moment? Well, in this episode, we are going to talk about regarding the ongoing relationship between China and Brazil. And also, eventually, we will talk about the relationship between France and China and also some of the European allies at this moment. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you follow our show, you should be familiar with one of our distinguished speakers, which is Dr. Marcus DeFritas. Again, Dr. Marcus is a senior fellow at the Policy Center for the New South and focusing on international law, international relations in Brazil. And he's currently a visiting professor of international law and international relations at China Foreign Affairs University in Beijing, China. Well, Dr. Marcus, and welcome back to The Missing Piece. Very good to talk to you today, Will, and congratulations on everything that you're doing. Thank you, Dr. Marcus. Now, I want to get started. As we mentioned before, recently, Brazil and China sealed such an economic large package, which worth $30 billion, which is the currency swap agreement between the two countries. Now, help us to understand what is the significance of such a deal and how does that boost the relationship from this economic perspective between the two countries? I think that over the last few years, we have seen China engaging in a process of slowly replacing the dollar as the world currency and the world reserve currency and the world transaction currency. And uh, and we know that in order to do that, uh, you have to gain confidence in the currency. You have more people to uh, adopt your currency and have more uh, confidence in, in the value and, and in the policies that are implemented to keep its value. Uh, so for the, you know, since 19, the late 40s, uh, the dollar has been actually the major uh, currency in the whole process. And that has given the Americans an enormous advantage when it comes to a series of things. Uh, of course, uh, China need China is trying to replace it, but it has to do that in a in a slow way because China also owes China also owns a lot of U.S. dollar uh, treasury bills and all that, and you do not want the dollar to devalue because it would be you know troublesome for the whole world. But we do see this movement of the the RMB uh, gaining more and more weight, and particularly considering that uh, China is the number one trading partner for more than 140 countries and territories it becomes an easier thing uh, for countries to start doing transactions in yuan and even paying each other in yuan. So you see that the process that the Ch 
Chinese have designed for making their currency, uh, the world reserve currency or a world reserve currency is certainly by trade, which is very essential nowadays and countries look forward to that. Now, it's interesting that Brazil was one of the big countries to adopt this kind of uh, relationship with China mm -hmm. because for the longest time, and we have said that before, Will, uh, Brazil has always treated China as a client, not as a partner. And I think that, you know, if Brazil were to join the, you know, the one, the Belt and Road Initiative and, you know, using this uh, using the currency swap more frequently and more intensively, I think that we can actually take the relationship to the next level. The currency, the current um, bilateral relationship is around $300 billion. I think that, you know, by starting doing this, we can actually move that to a much higher level because one of the things that is interesting is that the economies of Brazil and China, they are not uh, competitors, but they're com complementary. Mm. And there's a lot of things that China can do in Brazil when it comes to infrastructure and, you know, buy more Brazilian products and all that. So I think that uh, this is a good beginning and this is a good sign uh, that this president, Lula, uh, is actually engaging in. And I think it's something that needs to be congratulated. I disagree on several other points of his foreign policy, but uh, this is certainly the most important relationship Brazil has. And I think that one of the reasons why we might see positive results in all this, Will, is because the visit that President Lula had with President Biden mm. in the United States was a little frustrating for him. Mm. So he was expecting something else. And I think that he's placing a whole lot more bets in China. And, uh, and remember that in his first term, China actually saved uh, uh, his uh, the economy of Brazil at the time because of the intense uh, growth of the Chinese trade with Brazil, and that had a major positive impact in the country. So he realizes that China is an important player. That is his third visit, and I think that uh, I hope that new agreements will come out of this. Well, Dr. Marcus, again, when we look at this economic initiative between the two countries, now recently, just before our interview, and another term that started to pop up is called China's de-dollarization initiative. Again, we know that today, since the year of 2011, it's not just with the country of Brazil, but with many other countries that China started to build or initiated such economic a, a, a relationship with the countries. But meanwhile, by understanding the relationship with Brazil or you know with Armenia or any other countries, that could pose major significant economic threat, for example, to the West and to the United States of America. Now, Dr. Marcus, at this moment, based on what China has done with the country of Brazil and also other countries, do you think that this China's de-dollarization initiative should be concerning for the West? If so, what are the ways that for the US or for any other countries to counter or to balance the relationship with the countries that China had already solidified or, or strengthened the relationship? What do you say to that? Now, well, I wrote a paper a few years ago on the RMB and the process that uh, the RMB was slowly replacing uh, the dollar. Uh, 
We consider the dollar to be the world currency because the United States for a long time has had low inflation rates. Uh, the government has been behind the currency and Americans mm. uh, tend to comply with the contracts that they agree. Mm. So these are the three major factors why people trust the dollar and they rely on the dollar, right? Uh, but there have been some situations in which the dollar has been abused. Like we have seen uh, quantitative easing policies that were used by President Bush at the time. Uh, we have seen, you know, the use of the dollar for sanctions and uh, and trade difficulties that have been created. Uh, so uh, the U.S. has somehow abused the power that it has gained through the dollar. Mm. And you have to remember that, you know, uh, after right after the war, the dollar was the, trans the currency that was mostly transacted in the world. Mm. Now, looking into the U.S. participation of world GDP, we see that the United States basically represents 17% of the world economy, while the dollar is 40% of the transactions, so it's mm. twice as much. But the EU has, through the euro, uh, tried to replace the dollar in their transactions. Now, the euro had a very, uh, very uh, hard time during the, the 2008 crisis, and people were very skeptical about the euro, but has somehow consolidated and become like a really a currency that people use in their transactions and crown contracts and all that. But China has decided that... Uh, it, and it made sense for China to do the same thing with the yuan. Mm. Uh, now, the strategy that China had, had it was different from what the Americans did because China didn't have a world war where all the competitors were destroyed. Mm. So China has done this uh, in an amazing way and um, through trade, which is historically what china does best you know china has always been a trading uh a trading con a country and uh, we have seen and i always call i always remember that to my my students and everywhere that i have the opportunity to talk you have to remember that in the old silk road it was actually products from china getting moved to Europe and not the mm -hmm. other way, right? Because China has always had this tradition in commerce and China has done this uh, process of de-dollarization of the economy through trade and by becoming the number one trading partner, as I said to you before, uh, to several countries. Uh, so you have that positive aspect. And one thing that also is really uh, a sign and, and we have to see the signs as they happen. I remember that a few years ago, many journalists and many newspapers writers said that China, you know, the Yuan, the RMB would only become one of the one of the currencies in the IMF basket, mm. which comprises the dollar, the Yuan, the Euro, the Yen, uh, the euro, uh, it would take like, you know, 10 or 15 years mm. for China to be one of the currencies that is part of the, the SDR, right? You know, the special drawing rights of the IMF. Uh, and uh, everybody was saying like 15 to 20 years, and China did that in five years. Mm -hmm. So if people haven't realized how China has moved in a very effective way in this process, they really are not keeping track of what's taking on, what's going on around the world. Mm -hmm. So uh, it is something also that there is a demand. Uh, but the dollar has been guaranteed also uh, by the fact that we negotiate dollars uh, in dollars when we buy oil. Mm. 
Mm. So with the war in Ukraine, perhaps with Russia um, becoming more closer to, to China, you see that China is paying uh, uh, the Russian oil with RMB. And I think that the peace, not the peace agreement, but the peace agreement or the uh, uh, or the agreement that China has worked on in Saudi Arabia might also show a sign that in the future, those two major powerhouses in oil exports could actually start accepting RMBs for transactions. Mm. Uh, and that would be a major shift in the whole thing. So I think that the dollar has deteriorated in its power over the last few years because of the uh, erroneous transaction, you know, uh, the erroneous way that Americans have abused the power of the currency and that it will get tired after a little while and they want to seek alternatives. Mm. Dr. Marcus, again, you know, today, when we talk about the economic change or any economic shift, we can't uh, uh, talk about this economic change without bringing any geopolitical shift as well. But meanwhile, the fact is both China and the Brazil and also you mentioned Russia, all of the countries are also included in one of the major powerhouse, which is called BRICS. Now, Dr. Marcus, at this moment, by growing closely, economically speaking, for China, for Russia, for Brazil, how much do you think that could actually benefit this powerhouse? in general and how do you think that we should understand this economic partnership between brazil and china or between brazil and russia and again within this powerhouse how much do you think that it actually generate more by building a much closer economic ties well i think that in a way you will see that the old arrangements that we have in the West, of the G7, for instance, mm. uh, it's not, I won't say that the G7 is dead or something like that, because people always like to say this thing and they always get it wrong, right? The G7 congregates the seven largest economies in the world. The issue is that the G7 is a closed club. Mm. It's not open. And uh, even if China wanted, it's not going to be a member because the last one who was a member was Russia and it was kicked out, mm -hmm. right? Uh, when the G7 turned out to be G8 and they wanted to include Russia. But we have seen also that the countries that have participated in the G7 meetings and South Africa being the one that has participated the most really haven't had a major positive impact in their economies. Mm -hmm. So what we realize here is that the G7 structure is one that is not uh, really going to be helping the world change and then basically it is also preservation of the status quo mm. the situation as it is and uh, the more i travel through europe and where you know we have many of the countries that are part of the g7 you do see that many of them are leaving out of the legacy from the past no disruptive technologies no no uh, new uh entrepreneurial spirit or something else going on, right? Which is, uh, you need to be always creative and you always need to be competitive and you don't need always to be on the on the edge. You do not see that happening in many of the G7 mm -hmm. countries, which is a challenge for them. 
Now, on the other hand, you have the BRICS, right? Which is a term that was coined by a, J, uh, a Goldman Sachs economist at the time, uh, Jim O'Neill. And the whole thing is that never, nobody ever thought that this could actually become uh, some sort of arrangement. And uh, I read today in one of the newspapers in China that you're calling, you're saying that we're starting the second, the golden uh, year, the golden years or the second uh, decade, the second golden decade of the, of the, of the BRICS. And I think that that's true. You know, China has consolidated its position as a world power. Mm. Uh, India is on that way. We do have the problems with Russia and the way the Russians have deal, dealt with this situation in Ukraine. And that's a challenge to international law and international organizations. And China has really, uh, mentioned that that is a problem. Right. And according to the paper that was released by the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Uh, but we do see that this arrangement um, is looking by the by the countries that have requested to join. Um, it shows that it's a little bit more open and a little bit more willing to take others like the G7 was never willing to do. Mm. So I think that this open arrangement uh, is an important thing. And, and as we rebuild global governance because you know it doesn't make sense for you to have some countries with so much power and uh while these new economies now these rising economies should have more of a say in global governance and in the world status now i think that brazil my country of origin um still needs to understand the power of this shift in global governance mm -hmm. i do have my own restrictions on how on who we appointed to be the president of the new development bank but uh, i think that uh, brazil needs to learn and and understand how important this new arrangement is and consider also a very important factor is that we are actually sitting on the negotiating table mm. and uh, we always learn one thing that we say you know well we can you can be somebody who makes the orders or you can be somebody who takes the orders mm. right I think that the G7, not the G7, um, but the BRICS allows Brazil to be in the room and not outside the room waiting for the orders to be taken. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important thing that, uh, and, uh, and we need, you know, from time to time, the world needs to have some renewal of new ideas and we need to have some disruptive uh, strategies and disruptive events so that we can actually do something that is going to be more relevant. Mm. As we mentioned before, Dr. Marcus, the current president of Brazil, Lula, is set to visit China this week. Now, you're the expert. Again, you mentioned this during the uh, numerous occasions that Brazil is not a partner, but meanwhile, Brazil is a client for China. So what are the expectations that from your perspective, during the exchange between the current president of Brazil and also the Chinese leader this week? I think it would be ideal, really, if Brazil were to join the Belt and Road Initiative, mm. right? Uh, that would be something that uh, would basically allow uh, Brazil to enhance 
the relationship with China. Mm. Now, I know that the Brazilian president is traveling with a group of business people who some of them have been there for almost two weeks waiting mm. for, you know, who were waiting from the previous trip that was supposed to take place and never happened. But what I find out is that, uh, you know, many of these people are in the cultural sector and all that. And I, the only fear I have is that there is too many people talking about uh issues related to the environment and uh which are very important mm. don't take me wrong you know but my but what i think here um which is something that is essential in my viewpoint is that brazil needs to build infrastructure mm. we need to have new ports airports we need new roads and even you know for a long time we have been dreaming about the possibility of having an access to the pacific ocean mm. right uh, but the funds are never there and the infrastructure is never there. So I think that we should really partner up uh, with China in the building of this uh, enormous possibility that Brazil needs to uh, have in order to grow its economy. I'm always, I always, I'm always remembering that statement that you have in China uh, that saying that you have in China, build a road and get rich, mm. right? Uh, which I think is truly one of the essential factors for you to grow. Uh, you need to build the infrastructure. And I think that if President Lula were to emphasize this issue in the in the visit, I think that would be, you know, one of the most important items and a legacy in the relationship between the two countries. Um, and now other things, sustainable development and all these kind of issues are important, but what really matters now is how Brazil will deal uh, with its own need to grow economically. Mm. 40 years ago, uh, not 40 years ago, in 1978, when reform and opening up in China started, Brazilian, the Brazilian economy was uh, 10 times larger mm. than the Chinese economy. Mm. The Brazilian GDP per capita was 10 times bigger than the one you had in China. And now we are smaller. So the Chinese have done something right and we have done something very, very wrong mm. to, to get into that kind of situation. And the only way for this government to work out well is to have economic growth. Now, China really saved President Lula's first time by providing the necessary economic growth that the country needed at that time. Mm. And that's how, how he got elected and he was able to elect, you know, his successor and all that. Now, I think that, you know, we should look into China also as this, uh, not savior, but this very important player in that sense. So mm. I think that by treating China not as a client, but as a partner in mm. which we can build this new world order, this new global governance in ways that will be more, um, as China says, you know, uh, more, will ensure more cooperation and more shared values and a more shared, uh, shared future. I think that this could be the beginning of something really good. Now, the, uh, the previous government had an ideological blockade, blockage. Mm against China. Right now they have this in, in ideological blocking against China and I hope that this government will not have like an intellectual blocking against China and will understand the many possibilities that, that we can build together. 
Dr. Marcus, again, I got two more questions before letting you go. Now, let's shift our attention to the recent visit uh, by or initiated by the current president of France, Emmanuel Macron, that he also paid a short visit to China. Now, given the fact that today, when we look at China's rise, Russian aggression and weakening of democracy, global warming, technology, regulation, put everything together, as I mentioned in the intro, some people believe that Macron made a mistake by going to China because when he came back, he was actually empty-handed. But meanwhile, other people argue that Macron made a tremendous political progress by trying to convince China to, to uh, uh, make bigger step or maybe significant uh, uh, impact on Russia in terms of war in Ukraine. So briefly, uh, Dr. Marcus, from your perspective, how should we evaluate Macron's trip this time to China? And also keep in mind, domestically speaking, this political chaos is also falling on the shoulder of Macron right now. So what do you say to that, uh, Dr. Marcus? Well, we say that when presidents have problems at home, they enjoy traveling, right? <laughs> uh, because that is the moment when they can actually, for one week or for a few days, get out of the situation and uh, and be able to breathe. And uh, and France has many many problems, as we know, with this issue of the retirement age. Mm. You know, it's been like you know several weeks where we have like people manifesting themselves on the street. And I recall I was in, I was in Toulouse. I teach in Toulouse too, uh, early March. And I recall that people are not very happy with Macron. He got reelected, but he's only got twenty five percent support, which is very very low mm. for a president that still has four years to go. So it is an issue and it's a concern for him. But what we realize, though, uh, Will, is that uh, uh, France has always had somehow uh, mixed feelings about the relationship with, with the United States. And when it comes to um, the European countries, one could actually say that France is the only one uh, defense-wise, that is not dependent on the United States to do things. Mm. There are no military, as far as I know, there are no military bases from the United States located in France. While if you look into Germany, the UK, Portugal, everyone else has it. So that kind of reduces your freedom to decide things. Uh, and I think that because of that, France is always trying to play at a different league and uh, try to keep the uh, the relevance of the country uh, internationally. And I think that Macron comes within that spirit of, you know, keeping France uh, great again or making France great again uh, in a sense that uh, he is trying to make uh, France play a role that he hasn't played for a long time. Mm. It does play a role within the European Union and all that, but uh, France... Um, because of the colonies, because of the history and all that, always considered itself to be an important player in the world. Um, remember, there was Napoleon that said, let China rest because the day China wakes up, it will shake the world. Mm. There was a French guy who said that. And I think that Macron perhaps have finally understood that the world has shifted uh, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, that China is the new kid on the block mm. uh, with major strength. 
and it made sense for them to, you know, for France and the European Union to forge a new relationship with China and not buy into the American, you know, um, American allegations of uh, against China and all the shaming that sometimes the United States does against China. So I think that Macron has realized that. And that's why he even said that they need to rethink their relationship with, with the United States. First thing that they need to do is to stop China calling China a, uh, a rival. I mm. think that would be an important thing for the for the Europeans to start doing if they want to build a relationship that is positive in the long run. But overall, I think there was a score. It was a point for Macron uh, in relation to the other leadership, other leaders that we have in Europe. But it's a challenging situation because domestically, it's only got 24 24% support, and people don't realize that uh, all the benefits that could derive from such a change in foreign policy. Mm.